Do you need a PhD or holy orders to interpret the Bible? Not according to today's special guest, Franciscan University theology professor, Dr. Scott Hahn. Join us as we explore what Dr. Hahn's newest book, Spirit and Life, has to say about how Catholics are called to read and experience the Word of God in the church today. I'm Father Michael Scanlon, Chancellor of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. talking about how to read the Bible. We have our regular host here, uh, Dr. Regis Martin, Professor of Systematic Theology, and our regular substitute, Professor Dr. Mike Sorella, Assistant Professor of Theology, and our regular panelist is now our guest today on how to read the Bible, Dr. Scott Hahn, and we could say too much about him or too little. <laughs> I'm going to go for the second rather than the first. Uh, he has his doctorate in biblical theology from Marquette University, a professor of scripture. He's taught here since 1990 at Franciscan University, delivers many talks, writes many books, has many articles, and you see him on EWTN and all sorts of periodic and regular programs. And he and his wife, Kimberly, have six children and two grandchildren. Among his books are The Lamb's Supper, Reasons to Believe, and the topic of today's discussion, Spirit and Life, Essays on Interpreting the Bible in Ordinary Time. So, Scott, here we go. Let's start with the basics. What does the church mean by word of God? Well, the Word of God is what we typically associate with the Bible, and that's right, because yeah. it is the inspired Word. But what the church means by the Word of God is the incarnate Word, Jesus, a person, yeah. before it's ever a book. And it's a helpful reminder, not just because we're Catholics and that's the party line, but because as followers of Jesus, we recognize Jesus never wrote anything, and He never told the disciples, write this in remembrance of Me. He said, do this in remembrance of Me, and He was speaking not about a book, but about a sacrament, the most blessed sacrament, the Mass. And so when we read the Scriptures and we get our bearings, we recognize that what is front and center is not a book, but the second person of the Godhead who became man. He took what is ours to give us what is His. And yet, we're, Christians are frequently labeled the religion of the book followers, that the book is everything. So. Uh, how accurate is it to make the book, the Bible, so central? It's an, in, it's an inaccurate statement to say that Christianity is a religion of the book. I mean, that is something that Judaism affirms about itself, and likewise Islam. And <coughs> Protestants have sort of co-opted that phrase for their understanding of Christianity. And so they will declare themselves to be a religion, a religion of the book. But the Catechism states it very clearly that Christian faith is not a religion of the book. It's a religion of the Word, but the Word is a person. Okay. And then, right. it's also yeah. a book. And one other. In the sacrifice of the Mass, then, 
we have the Eucharist, how important is the Word of God there? Well, yeah, it's not just the pitcher warming up before the game begins. You know? <laughs> the liturgy of the Word is an essential yeah. part of the Mass. And you get this sense, not just in the 21st century, but back in the 1st. You go back there and you read that story in Luke 24 about the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and here is Jesus, you know, not recognized, but he's opening up the law and the prophets and showing how the Christ must suffer and then rise. But only in the breaking of the bread are their eyes opened. And so the, the, the church learned this twofold pattern, that the scriptures are ultimately what prepare us for the grace that illuminates Jesus' real presence in the Eucharistic breaking of the bread. Well, but at the same time, the Eucharist is what fulfills and actualizes the saving truth of Scripture. And so they really are coordinated. This is a means to an end, but Eucharistic communion, that's the goal. Well, Jesus is, opens their eyes to recognize him in the trip to Emmaus, but then when he goes back, the, the upper room meets with disciples, he opens their mind to understand Scripture. That's right, even while so he enjoys both. a meal. So once again, it's scripture and it's fellowship. It's a, it's a, it's a meal. And the purpose of this uh, word is union and eternal life, sharing in God's eternal family life. And part of what that is, as our Lord himself says in John 17, is that they may know its personal knowledge of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So part of the function of the word in the liturgy is to engage, bring the mind into this personal communion, and then the Eucharist fulfills that. <laughs> Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because when, when you look at John 17, the high priestly prayer, Jesus is talking about that they may know you. I mean, Jesus was Jewish and the disciples were Jewish, and the Jewish understanding of knowledge is so much more than intellectualism. That's I right. mean, it goes back to Genesis 3 and 4, Adam knew Eve. This is interpersonal communion. Yeah, right. Experience, concrete exactly. experience. So the Word totally. is central, and Scripture forms part of the Word of God, and so does tradition. But... Uh, but uh, somebody had to say this in this discussion, so I'll say it. St. Jerome says, ignorance of Scripture is ignorance of Christ, which, which indicates and implies the purpose. The purpose of the written uh, revelation uh, of the Word of God is to bring us into not just abstract intellectual knowledge, but a, a Hebrew experiential knowledge of mind, heart, personal, interpersonal communion of knowledge and love. It, it's important, I think, to maintain <clears throat> distinctions. Uh, you, you've captured that, I think, nicely with the title of your book, Spirit and Life. You're talking about ordinary time, but you do so in a pretty extraordinary way. So there is another distinction. The Word became flesh. The Word did not become paper. Uh, and when you sit in <laughs> front of this Word made flesh in Eucharistic adoration, you don't talk to a book. You're talking to a person whose enfleshment is right there before you. Uh, but the book is important. It's, it's instrumental. It's sacramental. It signifies. I mean, the, the catechism says, by all of these words, a myriad of words, God speaks the single utterance of his word. Yeah, but we also have thousands of years of disputes about what it says yeah, what do they and mean? what it means. Right. That word, yeah. Yeah. That right. word. Well, you know, you've just pointed out something that we can just build upon for a moment because in the Catholic tradition, we subordinate the Word inspired to the Word incarnate who is present in the Eucharist. Yeah. And you might say, well, Catholics then demote the Bible. No, in a, in a certain sense, you know, it, it, you might be number one as mayor of Steubenville, or you might be number two as vice president of the U.S., but when you find the Bible in the Eucharistic liturgy of the church, even though it's subordinated to the eternal word made flesh, nevertheless, it is elevated and empowered 
to reveal mysteries that go beyond any Bible study. It becomes living word, exactly. actualization the voice of, Christ. of the text. You know, right. when, when the Bible is read in the Mass, as the yep. Catechism makes it clear, so the Scriptures make it clear, Jesus right. is the one speaking that, through the That's bride. right, and that transcends the controversies in, a, in the sense that the proper modality, the proper context for this speaking of the Word is is, litur is liturgical, and it's a very different mode than the mode of academic dispute or the conflicts that have arisen over the words, which are important yeah. of themselves, too. But there are also, there are many writings uh, by the disciples of Jesus, by the apostles. There are many writings passed down. We see new movies about them all the time these days. Right. Yeah. And uh, so how did the church decide? Well, let me clarify it because you've made a good point that there are many writings by the disciples, you know, like the Gospel of Thomas. Right. Well, you know, close scrutiny, even by non-Catholic scholars, recognize, you know, it shows that the Gospel of Thomas is a forgery. It's a Gnostic gospel that was written pseudonymously, pretending to be Thomas the Apostle. Yeah. And there are others too, the Gospel of, of Peter, the Gospel of Paul. You know, these, these, these forgeries were circulating widely in the church. Yeah. Really, they were circulating widely outside the church. The church now, did they intend them to be forgeries, or were they just saying free license, that in the spirit of? Or, well, or were I, I they think they were intended to be. I think that they were. Okay. I think somebody who forged it might have passed a polygraph yeah. and saying, I think I'm capturing the spirit right. of Thomas. Right. Okay. And, and, but he I mean, wouldn't have passed the, a the latest, The latest hoax, I think, is the alleged letter from Judas, yeah. Yeah. Yes. which yes. really yes. does yes. discredit right. the whole structure of, uh, of the gospel. Yeah, April DeConnick and others have done so much good in debunking these sorts of things yeah. that, you know, you don't have to be a Catholic to have enough common sense to recognize the difference between something authentic and yeah. something That's that right, historically authentic. unreliable and, and I mean, what, what becomes of Christianity yeah. if the guy who betrayed Jesus is given the last word <laughs> on what it means, you know? Yeah. Well, that's why yeah. we have a canon of the scripture, Right, and, and what your question really leads us to yeah. is to recognize that the canonization of the Bible that produced what we would call the table of contents, mm. you know, it took place over centuries. Uh, it's important to recognize that the first books of the New Testament weren't written until 15, 20 years after yeah. the church had been started at Pentecost, and it was up and running, spreading widely, and so the gospel was being preached before the gospels were written. The Eucharist was being celebrated as the new covenant before the new covenant, the New right. Testament, was ever collected, and so by 395, we have a canon. 393, 395, 397, those are the three synods in North Africa that meet to decide upon, okay, these are the 27 books that will make up our New Testament. But going back much yeah. earlier in the fourth century, you already had the bishops convening at Nicaea, coming up with the Nicene Creed, and they knew what books were right, and yeah. they knew what books they were you know, reading and debating when it came to homoousios, that Christ is of one being, one, one, you know, consubstantial with the Father. So the Bible was really there from the end of the first century. It's finalized at the end of the fourth century. But the discovery that historians make that really opened my eyes was that the Bible was an ecclesiastical document. It was a liturgical book. So that when the bishops finally got around to deciding these books are in, those books are out, the decision was largely based upon the fact that for the last two or three hundred years, these books were the ones that were being proclaimed in the liturgy, right. and those books never found their way in. And so the canon yes. of the Good. Mass, like the canon of the Bible, is a liturgical act. 
Right. And so the, the Bible is a liturgical book, first and foremost. An atheist who looks at this objectively could draw the same conclusion. Yeah. But among Christians... Yeah, it's uh, not so easy. You know, it's a little less than objective a, analysis. I mean, it, it, the, the distinction is not that subtle. Uh, we relativize the book because it's not the centerpiece. Jesus is. He is the living revelation of, of God. Uh, it's relativized, but it's not rendered irrelevant. Uh, we need it. It's indispensable. It's a way of accessing God. Uh, uh, and it, to think that it was unimportant would be blasphemous. But Jesus didn't come to write a book. He came to found a church, to wed a people, to fashion a body. That body, the church, then sits in judgment upon the book. And, and he and did that through the apostles and their, their successors. And he didn't, he didn't appoint apostles and have them appoint successors just to condemn heresies. Right. You know, they right. were to proclaim the gospel, but right. you can't proclaim the truth uh, of the light without yeah. exposing darkness and, right. you know, defining the boundaries between truth and error. So the written word then is not chronologically first. It emerges from the <clears throat> sacred tradition of handing on the deposit of revelation, that, who, who is a person, three persons, the Trinity. So, the, so right, the, the word is relativized in an instrumental way because it's an instrument like sacraments are instruments right, right. to bring us into <clears throat> union with God, and there is the role of faith. The Bible has historical elements and is susceptible to historical investigation, absolutely. Yeah. But without faith, it remains largely right. closed. Yeah, when when, when you die and let's say you go to heaven, Jesus is not going to say, okay, open your books. Right. Here's the Bible verse we're going to discuss. <laughs> Protestants okay. get there and say, where's the Bible? <laughs> right. No, they won't. Catholics get right. there, they're not going to say, where's the Eucharist? Right. You know? right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at that point, we see face to face faith, hope, they go, Come to see love Jesus. Right. Right. Yeah. So the reading itself has to be from the heart of the church. Right. It has, you have to be grounded in the right place to read it correctly. That's right. And it's not just a matter of the heart versus the head. What we're saying is that knowing is ordered to loving. You know, within the soul, the intellect comes to the truth so that the will might choose the good and come to love. That's yeah. even true within God. You know, we, we have knowing is ordered to loving. So we have to study. So much of reading the Bible is, as I like to put it, 99 parts perspiration, one part inspiration. Yeah. It's a lot of work. It's yeah. a big book. Yeah. But I think if we're put off by, you know, the, the jungle of the Old Testament and the right. New, yeah. we've got to recognize that the word incarnate Jesus is much more inexhaustible mm -hmm. you know, than the Bible. So this is like preparation. I mean, if you really want to come to know Jesus and find out how inexhaustible the truth of his love is, this is good training. Yeah. Well, Scott, you've been perspiring for years, I, I think, and, <laughs> and the result is some of us feel inspired <laughs> by, what, yes. by the sweat of, of your brow. So yeah. thanks. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's well, a joy. when we come back, we want to pursue this matter of the Word of God being first Jesus Christ and His centrality and what that means and how that gives us direction to deal with reading the Word of God. Stay with us. I like to use the scriptures, especially during Holy Hour, because it can structure my prayer. And I will start with the Psalms, um, praising the Lord, and then I will move on to um, scripture readings and Psalms that focus on repentance. And I think that's the best way to pray using the scriptures because it is the Word of God given to us. Well, I'm able to listen to scriptures in Mass, and I'm able to go to almost daily Mass, and then I get to read the scriptures in my prayer time every day, which is great, and it's been a great way that God has spoken to me about my life individually. 
here at Franciscan, students recognize their vocation as a student to study and get their work done and be a good nurse or be a good doctor or whatever they want to do and they take it seriously. I feel that the presence of the sacraments on campus, specifically confession and the Eucharist at Mass, helps me develop a really personal prayer life with Jesus Christ, my Savior. That's awesome. The people here are so energetic about their faith and I think Franciscan has the perfect blend of everything. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. Talking about how to read the Bible with our special guest who's our regular participant on, on these shows, Dr. Scott Hahn. Uh, how do we really read and get what the Bible is supposed to give us and how do we incorporate it in uh, Christian life? Um, and as you said earlier, you know, the word of God, yes, is scripture, but it's first Jesus himself. Pope Benedict XVI has said that Christology has been losing its meaning. Uh, and explain that to us. Have, have we been losing the centrality of this that will undermine our understanding, word of God? There's no cases? doubt. There is no doubt something's happening, and it's been <laughs> happening for a couple of centuries. And what I think Pope Benedict is referring to is that out in the academy where the Bible is studied yeah. by the scholars, everything's up for grabs. And why? Well, for one thing, I would say once you take the Bible out of its natural or its supernatural mm -hmm. habitat, which is the church's sacramental worship, you know, you're already, you're already setting things up. But the second thing that is going on is that the interpretive process for reading the Bible is both human and divine because that's what the word is. The Bible as inspired is fully human. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John weren't stenographers, right. but it's also fully divine. The Holy Spirit is the principal author. And so when you read the book, you have to read it like any other book at one level because you're looking at the literary sense, what do the words yeah. mean? You're looking at the historical truth, what events are being described? And that's where some scholars want to stop. But it's not where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wanted us to stop. They wrote well, they gave us the literary sense. They were reliable witnesses in giving us historical truth, but they were writing for the theological meaning of those historical events. And so if you stop short of the theological, you're really betraying the very authors you claim to be reading objectively. And so the church has always insisted upon beginning at the foundation, the literary sense, then moving to the historical truth, but not stopping there, but going on to see that the faith of Christ is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and all the rest are communicating. And so theological interpretation, theological exegesis is not alien to the Bible. It isn't extrinsic to Scripture. You're, you're basically, you know, I, I'm tempted to say that requiring people to check their faith at the door like their hats and canes before they read the Bible, you know, is like claiming that a, a music critic who is tone deaf is more objective in evaluating that's a That's a great, that's a that great point. That is a good in, analogy. In the last segment, Father, you said you referred to the passage in Luke where Christ opens the minds of yeah. the apostles to the meaning of Scripture. And I've thought about this a bunch of times over the years. The apostles were no dummies. They were, some of them were men of letters. Uh, it's, it's a mischaracterization to portray them as ignorant. So why did they, these non-ignorant, these decently educated fellows, need their minds open to the meaning of scriptures? Yeah. Because it's not only a human historical set of documents or document, 
but it is divine in its source and in its content. And therefore, we need fundamentally, all of us, no matter how smart or not you may be, the, the, the help of Christ to open our mind to understand its meaning. That's why on the purely, if it's in the academy, a purely historical approach is going to, to sever you from the, the, the depths, the theological well, depths, it, which is the person yeah, it really of Jesus. It depends it's on, the on how of rich and, and, and fertile mm-hmm. um, your hermeneutic of history is. The medievals, for example, who sort of developed and perfected the fourfold method of exegesis, I mean, they were quite convinced that history is already pregnant right. with, with mystery. It begets the full sense of the scripture. I mean, it's not enough to stop at the literal. You have to probe and, and plunge beneath it because it opens up the whole vista of mystery. God is speaking to us. Yeah. The historical yeah. Christ and, is and the And who son would of be God. interested in Christianity yeah, if yeah. Jesus were reducible to some Palestinian fanatic, you know, some sun-baked right. pseudo-prophet? Right. The point who is, would care? The point is that, the, the, that Jesus Christ, the historical Jesus, is the Son of God. Right. right. That's the point. And yeah. that's why what Regis says is more than nostalgia. You know, it's not like, well, if only we right. could go back to, yeah. the, to the 12th period. century. Yeah. Right. There's right. no place like Rome, you know. Yeah. The, the point is, rather, that when you see faith and reason coordinated properly, you're basically recognizing it's the only way to read the Gospels and the rest of the Bible because it's the only way this book could have been produced. And so just like we communicate with people and when they're hearing us, we're hoping that they're listening to us and interpreting us on our terms. You know, that's what we owe to authors in general. That's what we owe the New Testament writers in particular. As inspired men, they're communicating literary they're communicating historical, but ultimately for the purpose of giving us uh, the faith in the theological mystery of Jesus. That's oh, right. It's and Jesus that has to be the center here. Th- that's right. The center what, what, what of the thing living act of faith in him. Everything what is, else what does Christ that. reveal to them when he opens their minds to the meaning of the scriptures? How the Old Testament talks all about him. Right. What he reveals to them is, a, is himself personally. Yeah, when that's, reason submits to right. the mystery of faith, reason ends up not being disempowered, but energized. Reason can reason so much more reasonably and profoundly in the light of faith than it can without faith. And that's yeah. what Ratzinger, that's what Pope Benedict right. is intent. Yeah. But I mean, all he's doing is just echoing the tradition. Right. I mean, when, when Pascal says the heart has reasons of which reason knows yeah. nothing, that is certainly true, even of, of God's heart. He opens his heart in the scriptures. He speaks to us. I mean, John of the Cross says, God speaks one word in the scripture, and it is definitive. It's his whole word. He has no other word to speak. It's inexhaustible. Our task is to find it. It's there. See, this is the key, because you know the, the common notion that we have the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith is like saying, well, we have Scott Hahn, the husband, and we've got Dr. Hahn, the professor. Right, yeah. Well, you can distinguish, but you can't separate those right, two. Right. Yeah. But what's happened is history has been robbed. It's been rendered bereft of God's presence and God's activity. In the name of rationality, we've lapsed into rationalism because reason is capable of discerning not only that God exists, but that God is present and active. Nicodemus wasn't a disciple when he said, we know you're a teacher from God because no one can perform the signs that you do unless God is with them. And Jesus said, well, look, unless you're born of water and spirit, you can't take your natural belief and turn it into supernatural faith without the spirit, without the sacraments, without this personal conversion. key to this whole thing 
is Jesus as son of God, son of the Father, right? That's that right. it's not, right. you can't just take Jesus off by himself. Yeah. And well, you know, that's what Nicodemus didn't right. understand right. because right. he's like, you're yeah. a teacher, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, yeah, that's a good start, but that's not a good yeah. finish. Yeah. I mean, the, the conversation yeah. <laughs> that, that, so far as I can tell, opens up this mystery of divine sonship is the exchange he has with Philip, who says, look, when are you going to show us the Father? And Jesus says, look, have you been with me so long yeah, and you yeah. still don't get it? He who sees me sees the Father. Right. I am his image, his word, his self-utterance. Right. I mean, that, that connection between the Son and the Father, the Word and God, right. is absolutely foundational. And, I mean, that is, a, that is a bright light that yeah. is shown for Thomas. The, the lesser light that Nicodemus gets is, unless you're born of water and spirit baptized, yeah. you're not going to see the kingdom, much less enter it. And then how does the dialogue end? John 3.16. Who are those words spoken to? Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten teacher? No, his son. Right. Right. Yeah. The, the, the identity of son <laughs> is more fundamental than anything else because all of his other roles as uh, preacher, uh, savior, <clears throat> etc., <cetera, clears throat> are not roles that he had right. uh, for eternity yeah. in, the, in the heart of the Trinity, but son is. Yeah, it's all the identity. other stuff exists yeah. in the order of time. Yeah. I mean, for example, we're and it teachers. it flows from his identity. Yeah, the world so doesn't need more teachers. You know? yeah, yeah. I mean, we're pretty self-important yeah, guys. Yeah. We teach, but Jesus did not come to teach. So but, it's Christ's prayer to right. his Father in the, in the New Testament that holds a very special role yeah. in bringing us to know his identity. See, the prayer and the study <clears throat> of Jesus' prayer are like inseparable. You know, in this book, Spirit and Life, I focus so much in the earlier essays on Pope Benedict. And it's not just because, well, he's the head honcho at this point in time. It's because this man is like no other. We have never right. seen a, a, a biblical, theological scholar of world repute become the occupant right. of the chair of Peter. Right. And, you know, it, it takes time to appreciate things that are a little too close. I know, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, you know, all of the things that tourists would come to see, yeah. I never saw. I could see at any time. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, when John Paul was talking about the theology of the body in the early 80s, it wasn't discovered until the 90s. It was like a ticking time yeah, bomb, as Weigel right. puts it. You know, well, I would say what, what Pope Benedict has been doing his entire lifetime as a scholar and as a bishop, as a teacher, and now as the pope is a kind of revolution of sorts, but really it's a counter-revolution because it shows us that we don't have to turn back the clock. We have to recognize that this might not seem timely to scholars, but it's timeless truth nonetheless that the way we read the Bible from the heart of the church is the only way that we really get the depth of Scripture. And it's not just because it's more orthodox. That's true. But what Pope Benedict points out is that reading the Bible in the light of faith is actually scientifically superior. Mm. Because when you read it in faith, you actually exhibit greater explanatory power. You can make better sense out of the deep wisdom in there. So we don't throw away historical academic right. study. You enliven it. do it from a perspective of faith. It's, it's informed and enlivened by faith and charity. Absolutely. And exactly. Right. It's not just that Jesus here and left. Right. How important is his return, the parousia, and yeah. this to yeah, well, fulfill the picture there? The parousia is a Greek word originally. It, yeah. it, it, you look it up in a lexicon, and it really has one primary meaning, and it's not what we think. Yeah. Parousia is now in Oxford's, it's in Webster's, it's an English word because the fundamentalists co-opted it a couple centuries ago mm. and basically reduced it to the one meaning, and that is second coming. But in fact, you look at any Greek lexicon, in the first mm. century, the word parousia meant presence. Mm. When Paul says, as in my presence, so in my absence, yeah. work out your salvation with fear and trembling, his word for presence is parousia. 
So when we as Catholics confess the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, you translate that back into the lingua franca of the first century yeah. believers. They believed in the parousia. The Eucharist wasn't compensation for some postponed second coming. The second coming is simply going to pull the curtain back and show us what has been present right. all this time on our altars and right. in our tabernacles, right. in our bodies, yeah. the radiant Lord of glory. I mean, isn't that the point of Emmaus, uh, this road trip they take? Yes. He's there with them from the beginning, but it's only at the end that, uh, right. that, you know, that the scales fall from their eyes and they see it's a eureka moment. You know, this conversation is not just about these mysteries. I mean, there's a certain sense in which this conversation is almost incomprehensible apart from them. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's one thing to do a show. It's another thing to actually forget the cameras are there. You know, right. and that's where we sure. are right now. Because what it illustrates what is what you were saying, Mike, that this doesn't sort of like, you know, well, you have human reason and historical academic research, but you overvalue those, you know, back off. No, this enables us to do far greater and an intensified rational historical analysis. You know, in the light of the, the divine, the human is empowered. It is not yeah. subjugated or reduced. Well, we're immersed in the very mysteries that we try and describe and grapple with, what, what Eliot calls the intolerable wrestle with words and meanings. That's what we're about. Yeah, we're pilgrims of the word. Oh. And to think that we get paid to do this, <laughs> you see. Not Astonishing. Much, not, not enough. Yeah, well, Can my you do job something about that, this, Father? Well, the cameras yeah, are yeah. still running. Well, right? well, 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 we are enmeshed in, in, in it, and it's part of an, a certain understanding of tradition that's expressed by St. Augustine, it's expressed by Benedict XVI. It's an idea of tradition <clears throat> like that, that's based on the idea that the church is the mystical body of Christ and has, therefore, a mystical personality. Yeah. And she's a living person who's alive today, and tradition is her memory. Tradition is her memory of walking and living with Jesus in memory. Palestine and beyond. And by memory, and that's what we're in. Yeah. By memory, you mean the rich, deep, ancient notion. It is like, memory. What yes. did I wear yesterday? What did right. I have for dinner? Right. Yeah. Not recollection. Memory, you know, merely. I, 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 I'm haunted by the Lion King. You know, the, 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 that line, remember who you are. Yeah. I mean, that's what the Holy Spirit empowers the church to do, to remember who we are. It's a personal we're the bride knowledge. Of Christ. Yeah. So, so, you know, yeah. without memory, I couldn't finish the sentence. Right. Without memory, I wouldn't know why we're sitting here. Right. Memory is more than self-consciousness. It tells me who I am, where I am, and who I'm related to. And in the church, the Holy Spirit, you know, Augustine, who describes the memory of the church, right. Right. also points out that a body without a soul is a corpse that's decomposing. You've got the church as the body. Where is the soul? The Holy Spirit. Right. So when yes. we speak of tradition, it isn't right. archaic. It's alive. And it's the Holy Spirit. That's what we want to get into as we come back. How essential is the Holy Spirit to this whole discussion of reading the Word of God, of celebrating the Word of God in the Mass? What, what is the vital role of the Holy Spirit and why is it more than dangerous to ignore that? Stay with us. A lot of people find it hard to read the Bible. If you're one of those people, then what you can do is if you go to Sunday Mass and go to daily Mass, and if you can't make it to every day, um, then if you just read the readings for, every, for the daily Masses, then you'll find that over a three-year period with cycles A, B, and C, you'll have read the vast majority of the Bible. I would say that the classes here are very rigorous because it's not just about 
repeating the information back to the professors about applying our faith and applying the lessons to current events, to different social problems. Franciscan University is definitely a challenging academic environment. It's unlike any other Catholic university out there. We're not just going through the motions. We evangelize in the community, do service for those in need. There's even weekly sidewalk counseling and prayer at an abortion clinic in Pittsburgh. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. For 25 years, Franciscan University has led journeys in the footsteps of Jesus Christ and the saints. We go as pilgrims, not merely as tourists, exploring the richness of the Catholic faith and enjoying the laughter, prayer, and support of Christian fellowship. Join Franciscan University on a true pilgrimage that will touch your mind, heart, and spirit. Visit FUSJourneys.com. Talking about how to read the Bible. Talking about it with our not-so-special guest, Dr. <laughs> Scott Hahn, who's always here. We're here at Franciscan University, surrounded by students who are working the equipment and uh, with many directors also helping them. And we're getting into the uh, topic of tradition. This has been controversial over the years. There are sola scriptura people who you can't move from what right. you read yeah. in the Bible. And then uh, the Catholic Church has always said they go together. They're two parts of one thing, the tradition. Well, well let me make one adjustment here. The Catholic Church does teach that, but only because Scripture teaches it too. You know, go ahead. The Church was teaching even before the Scriptures were written about this. But I mean, I was one of those sola scriptura men for okay. many years. Yes. You know, and uh, until I found that Scripture doesn't teach sola scriptura, that sola scriptura <laughs> is contra scriptura. Right. You know, we find in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul commanding the Thessalonians to hold fast to the traditions that you've received from us, either in writing or by word of mouth. He does the same thing again in chapter 3, verse 6. So scripture is pointing beyond itself and binding us to extra scriptural realities like tradition. And so when you face the music and you recognize that my, my mind and my heart are bound to God's Word, then I was bound to renounce Sola Scriptura and affirm tradition. I just had to go in search of a church that had this tradition and claim to. So right. you're saying I can't even talk about Scripture here and tradition there? No, they're interpenetrated. Right. They're right. inseparably right. Yeah. united. Scripture emerges from tradition. Yeah, and tradition right. is both a handing on and it's the content that's handed on. And therefore, right. yeah. it, it, tradition has to be with the written Word the whole Word of God. That's the key. Yeah. That will unlock it because the notion of tradition in our minds is sort of like, you know, Teviev and Filler on the Roof. It's just something that's really old and authoritative but antiquated, you know, and archaic. Whereas when we speak of living tradition, we're talking about the soul that animates the body. We're talking about something that is present here and now and powerfully so. You know, and I'm thinking about how the original meaning of tradition is parodicis. It's the, the handing down. And so the Father gives us the Son. There's a traditioning going on there. Then what does the Son say? Well, the Son says, it's better for me to go to the Father for your sake, because unless I go to the Father, we won't send you the paraclete. And when the paraclete comes, greater works than these shall you do. And the disciples are sitting around the table thinking, Jesus, with all due respect, 
you know, for us, it's not better for you to go to the Father. It's better for you to stick around. Whatever you're talking. But Jesus knew we needed the paraclete to even understand the words that wow. he spoke. But what makes the difference between mere human tradition and the sacred living tradition is precisely that presence. A mere right. human tradition is recalling and passing along something really, really old. This doesn't get old. This is the living presence of the Lord in the, in the church through the Holy Spirit with a living memory bringing us into a personal, real, concrete, saving contact with Christ. You know, in, in your book, you have some fine things uh, about uh, tradition oh. and memory. And, and you cite Pope Benedict uh, in, in a wonderful uh, uh, passage where he speaks of tradition as a living dialogue uh, in which the church finds herself drawn, literally drawn, gathered up, into this drama of God, the unfolding of God, yeah, His Paul, plan. Paul doesn't just say, I'm passing on this information. Right, right, right. But he also says it's God in us apostles, right, as it right. were, yeah. making His appeal through us. Yeah. So it's living because it's not just a memory of an event that is gone and, and over and done with. No. And but this it's is God's living presence in and through the persons of the church. And See, Jesus Himself gives us the lead on how to interpret Scripture. Yeah, that's really crucial. <laughs> right, tells this us is the right, key. That the paraclete is going to come and bring right. to your remembrance all that I've said. And they're looking at him thinking, you know, with all due respect, again, we remember what you said. Yeah. But there's remembrance, then there's remembrance yeah, in right. the sense of do this in remembrance. Right. That term anamnesis yeah. really helped me understand what the church means by tradition. And what the church means by living tradition, because it always sounded so mystical, you know, the memory, you know, and the, the presence. And, you know, get real. Where do I find tradition living in the Catholic Church? Mm. What is it that the, that the paraclete is empowering the apostles and their successors to do that makes this something that is more than a mystical intuition for Roman Catholics? Yeah. And what I found in Ratzinger, before I was even Catholic, and what I also found in Congar, and in St. Thomas was this idea that the tradition that we speak of is living because of the sacraments. That the sacraments that constitute our liturgy, this is our life as the body of Christ. The liturgy is how the body of Christ breathes in and out. Yep. And the dialogue that goes on in the Mass, we're through in the Spirit, through the Son, we're thanking the Father, Eucharisto, to thank. Right. You know, this dialogue, and then he speaks his word to us and then empowers us to speak again. This, this, this family dialogue, this dialogue is real. Yeah. And, and the Holy Spirit is the one who makes it so that even if that priest might be secretly in mortal sin, it doesn't matter at one level because right. he's able to give us Jesus because Christ is the high priest. The Holy Spirit overrides our weaknesses and delivers the goods to the faithful like any good father wants to empower his family. This, this tradition is tangible yeah. as bread and wine and water and oil, and yet it's more than material. It really is profoundly divine. There, you know, there's a, there's a lovely line from the Italian poet uh, Cesare Pavese who says, memory is a passion repeated. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that's vivid, that, that's graphic. It captures this whole business, this transaction. By these signs rendered sacred, uh, we represent, we reproduce, rehearse, recapitulate all over again the reality of Jesus Christ. He's here with us now. Otherwise, we are really at a fatal disadvantage to those who lived in the first century because physically we're not in any kind of proximity to Jesus. He's gone. He left the stage. He's no longer here. But sacramentally, 
because of this power of the sign, Jesus is, is represented. He's somehow back here again, once more, in an efficacious way. And this is so, rooted in our Lord's words themselves, the words themselves, when He says in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel 28, chapter 28, go and make disciples of preaching, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teach to observe commandments, all I've commanded you, and lo, which is not a word we often use yeah. in English, it just means look, yeah. behold, almost as if to say, in this way, I am with you till the right. end of the age yeah. in the preaching, in the sacraments, and in the, you know, authoritative. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, really otherwise, the, the, otherwise the promise of Christ would be vain and empty, right. almost obscene. Yeah, you know, right. he's calling us to a life of intimacy with the Father, but he's not making himself available right. as the means. How do right. I get to the Father? Right. If, if the way to the Father is sort of oblique, roundabout, circuitous, Hidden, and in the end, gnostic. I don't even find him. <laughs> Yeah, what yeah. a frustration. Well, it comes down to presence from my point of view. You know, I can read a book about Ethiopia and it's not coming together. I mean, <laughs> I'm reading all stuff about Ethiopia, but I just get a lot of facts. Right. But when I'm reading scripture, I'm doing this, I have the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's like going the to Lord Ethiopia. To show it. Yeah, hey, yeah right. being yeah. in Ethiopia. <laughs> or Ethiopia coming right. to you. Yeah. yeah, you know, this idea of remembrance, <laughs> I remember being confused by it, you know. Uh, there was a passage that really grabbed me way back in John 2, uh, when Jesus cleanses the temple and the officials demand a sign to show what authority you have to do this. And he, did, he said something rather provocative, almost a terrorist threat. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it back up. He didn't say, I will destroy this temple. He just said, destroy this temple. I mean, what a provocative utterance, especially since the temple had already been destroyed once, the most traumatic black day in Jewish history, back when the Babylonians did it. And then we read in the next two verses of how the disciples themselves didn't understand right. what he meant. It wasn't until after he was raised from the dead that they remembered the scriptures and believed in what he said. And this confirms what Jesus told them in the upper room, that if I leave and I go to the Father, we will send you the paraclete, and the Spirit will cause you to remember. Remembering here is not just like, oh yeah, he did say that. You know, it's commemoration. It's the kind of presence that we experience when we commemorate a birthday or an anniversary. We don't celebrate a birthday because for 364 days of the year, we forgot this kid was born. Now suddenly, ah, oh, we remember, you know, we're celebrating this person's life and his growth. So when we remember in the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to commemorate more than birthdays or anniversaries. It's the presence and the life of Jesus himself. Is this himself. what the Pope means by liturgy being the goal? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly what he's, and this is why Scripture is so ordered to the Eucharist, and the Eucharist is so illuminated by the Scriptures that once you get this connection, you're like, okay, why do we disconnect the two? You know, right. how right. could you understand the mystery without the inspired word? But how can you study the saving truth without experiencing it right. in right. this family gathering, in this covenant renewal? That's right. Scripture is didactic, but it's teaching. It teaches by way of mystagogy in a yeah. liturgical, sacramental context. Mystagogy meaning uh, the Catechism 1075 says, you, you look beyond the external to see the internal. Right. The visible yes. gives to us the invisible, the human gives to us nothing less Th that, than That's why I, I think a, a purely Protestant perspective, sola scriptura, is so impoverishing. Uh, it doesn't open up the scriptures. It doesn't release that memory that is so enriching, so empowering. 
You know, in, 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 in Father Murray's book on the problem of God, he identifies the birth of the Protestant spirit with the refusal to accept homoousion at the Council of the First Nicaea. He describes that as Explain the that last momentous argument about God. You don't What's find that word, consubstantial, homoousion, in the scriptures. So the right wing, the conservatives, the Protestant mentality said it's not a scriptural word, therefore it can't be canonical. Let me unpack that because yeah, that's profound and practical. You know, in 325, the Council of Nicaea, the first of all the ecumenical councils met, formed the creed and gave us the term homoousios, yeah. which in Greek means, you know, basically the same substance, one in being with the Father. And that illustrates, as Pope Benedict points out, that when we call Jesus the Son of God, it isn't a figure of speech or a metaphor. It is a reality. Because, you know, if I make a statue that looks like me, it isn't human. If I have children that don't look like me, they're my children. They're my sons because they're one in being with their father. So the son is really the son because he's one in being with the father. That isn't metaphorical language. But what the faithful found so startling about the creed of Nicaea is it was the first time that the bishops had ever required the faithful to embrace an article of faith that wasn't explicitly in Scripture. That's why for the next 40 years after the Council of Nicaea, right. there was a debate and the Arians were winning yeah. because these conservatives were called all their homoousions. You know, where is that in the Bible? Well, finally you recognize that, you know, homoousios is not in the Bible. What does that translate to that word, homoousios? Same substance, right. same right. essence. That, that One he's in God from God. The same right. nature. God he's from God, God, from God, from God, light from light. The same Through stuff. The sun. Yeah. Yeah. And so, he's the same know, kind of being. But these, these Orthodox were being derided for going beyond the Bible until right. people recognized what Ratzinger says so well. Pope Benedict says, dogma is, by definition, nothing other than the church's authoritative interpretation of Scripture. And what would that when mean? we read all about Jesus being the Son, that's the most frequently used term in all the Gospels, right. Right. what do we mean by Son? Is it metaphorical because the Egyptian kings were called sons of gods? No, it's not a figure of speech. This captures who right. Jesus is from all eternity. Right. Yeah. And it makes our relationship it, with Him wow. possible. It's the Holy Spirit in the church leading us to understand the truth right. that's revealed. So it really is, for example, an authentic interpretation of John 1, where wow. Jesus is the monogenes, the only begotten, right. the logos, is that's the right. only begotten of the Father. This homoousios is just a way of saying that's literal, not poetic or figurative. That's right. Oh, wow. I mean, this is a genuine development of doctrine from within That's a right. living tradition. And from an academic who is also a liturgist to show that right. the, 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 the church is the, the best context for academic research in Scripture. Right. Yes, that's the place. Okay, well, when yeah. we come back, each of you is going to be called on to make, back. bring <laughs> this uh, forward. How do we live out all this understanding? on reading the Word of God rightly, and how does it enrich in our lives spiritually and presence and life at the heart of the church. Stay with us. I'm in Sermon to the Savior household, and uh, we pray Liturgy of the Hours every morning in the chapel, and it's a great way to jumpstart our morning by reading the Word of God. Well, outside of, of the Eucharist and Mass, I'd have to say that the Word of God is the most important part of, of building a personal relationship with our Lord and allowing His words to speak to you, to speak to your heart. Um, I find that time in reading the Word really allows Him to minister to you um, in providing peace and comfort 
and just coming to know him in a more personal and deeper way. The professors are constantly bringing in God to their subjects, no matter what it is, not because they have to or they're trying to force it, it's because he naturally works in everything that we're learning about. I'm a biology major and it's hard, <laughs> it's really tough. But anything biology, muscle, body is cool to me. So learning about the body and the way that the body works and knowing that, that there's a God behind it all is just absolutely amazing to me and beautiful. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. We've come to the last phase and talking about how to read the Bible with our panel here sharing their final thoughts and takeaway thoughts for you so that you can go forth in reading the Bible and understanding it as the church believes. Okay, we start with you, Regis. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, Scott, uh, it's another home run. Uh, you've uh, struck pay dirt, uh, I, I think, another hit, and you're to be commended for this wonderful book. It's chock full of uh, many useful, insightful things. Uh, and let me just uh, seize upon one. Uh, you make... Uh, a great deal of Pope Benedict's insistence that the centerpiece of Jesus' self-understanding is the fact that he is the Son, he is the Word, the utterance of the Father, and that his whole life is dialogical. It's, it's a conversation with the Father, which is another way of saying his life is prayer, even as death becomes mm -hmm. an act of prayer. And, and I thought that was so helpful, so, so thrilling, I mean, really so profound, because that's an eternal designation. His relation to the Father antedates whatever relation he has to the world or to us. He is Son from all eternity. But what makes it so consoling is that he invites us to be drawn into that same dialogical relation. To be is to be in relation to the other. And in the life of prayer, our prayer life, we're drawn literally into that current of prayer and conversation which constitute his being, not just his work. I mean, with us, we set time aside for prayer. You know, maybe I'll give 10 minutes here, a half hour there, but I need to economize. With Jesus, uh, it's all over the top. His life is prayer. And, and I think your treatment of that uh, theme is, is really quite wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Regis and Mike. Well, I concur with Regis, so. Scott. Very, very good job. This is an excellent, excellent book. Spirit and Life, Essays on Interpreting the Bible in Ordinary Time. Um, to understand uh, the written Word of God, St. Athanasius once said at the end of his treatise on the incarnation of the Word that uh, to really plumb the depths, so to speak, to really enter into the mysteries revealed in their depths, it's required that you uh, receive the gift of forgiveness and holiness and sanctity. Okay. Nevertheless, even without faith, the Bible confronts the reader. And so it hits people on every level. People who have no faith, people who have profound faith, people who have, uh, who have a life of moral turpitude, people who have a life of, of heroic sanctity. The Bible hits people on every level. Matthew 16, for example, clearly it seems the intention is to confront the reader with the historical event. Who do you say that I am, Jesus says. 
And as a reader reading that, whether you have faith or not, approaching that with an open mind and open heart, uh, you yourself kind of reverse engineer or recreate the situation of any human uh, who sees the, the, the deeds and hears the words of our Lord. And then you have to make an answer. And right away, what does Christ say after Peter gives the right answer? He says, blessed are you, the Father's revealed this to you, uh, not flesh and blood. And then he launches off into the necessity of suffering, sharing with his suffering uh, to share in his glory. Uh, the whole purpose of the written word is to bring us into not just knowledge about the person of Christ, but it is personal, intimate, immediate knowledge of Christ who is real, alive, and present here with us right now. Um, your book eloquently speaks to that clear purpose and uh, is a very, very useful guide for, for biblical uh, literacy and fluency, fl uh, fl uh, fl you know, being yeah. fluent in, in the Bible. So thank well, you. Well, we'll talk so a little more about the book in a, in a moment, but uh, for now, Scott, what would you say to people after writing all this, you've done an extraordinary job at this university and the church of showing the linkage, the inclusion between scripture and liturgy and how you can't just have one, you need them both with, with awareness. Well, it's, it's fun to give, but much more important to live. So appreciate your prayers. Uh, prayer is what I was gonna say, and, and, and both of you have already pointed this out, uh, prayer, is really where it begins and ends. And honest prayer, you know, like Jacob wrestling with the angel, like the son wrestling with the father in the garden of Gethsemane. I mean, when you read the Bible, you recognize that prayer is a wrestling match where you're like saying to God with all due respect, you know, I don't wanna pray, I'm so distracted, I, I, I'm not even sure, you know, where I am in my relationship with you. You're praying. In fact, you're praying more profoundly sometimes when you speak that way than if you've gone through 15 rosaries. So start off with that kind of prayer that comes from the heart of a child that can be nothing but honest. The second thing is read, so that your prayer becomes a dialogue. And read the Gospels because that's the living word. Read the Psalms because, you know, that's the one book of the Bible the church prays 24-7. Yeah. And it's an Old Testament book. But it really shows us a man after God's own heart because David was a man of prayer. He was the one who taught the world to pray. You can hardly find any prayers before David comes in the Old Testament. So the Psalms especially, read the Bible and, and recognize, okay, it's a jungle. You don't want to just kind of run into the middle of it without a map, without a guide. But you have the catechism. You've got the magisterium. You've got the church. You know, and that doesn't mean, well, look, we've got the catechism. Who needs the Bible? We've got the catechism so we can get much more out of the Bible than we could without it. So prayer, reading, and the third thing is worship. Go to church. Go to Mass and recognize that this is really prayer and reading together as a family. The faith was never just about individualism. It's always about interpersonal communion. And prayer fosters that with my father, Abba. But when we worship and gather as a family, we recognize why did Jesus teach us to pray our father, not just my father? Because he really wants us to recognize who we are. Remember who you are. You're not just a son, you're a brother. And you might be a spiritual father figure to other people. And so come together as God's family and hear the word and then celebrate the presence of the word. And when you get in tune with the spirit and you get in touch with the scriptures as the church reads it, it creates a feedback loop. So you're back to praying. 
and reading and back to worship and then again and again. And I think those three simple steps are the best way for anybody to begin, whether you're just an amateur or a scholar. Okay. Well, and you can all find this, the heart of this in Spirit and Life, Interpreting the Bible in Ordinary Time by Scott Hahn, and it's from Emmaus Road. And we're going to send you, just for the asking, a handout, which is an essay by Dr. Hahn on the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, that'll be sent to you just for contacting us in the office. What can I add to all this rather penetrating, esoteric, uh, <laughs> theological, hermeneutical discussion? Maybe a little homespun. I went off to boarding school in the second grade. My mother was such a loving mother. She would write at least once a week, many times more than that. And I'd leave the letters around. But people would find them. Other kids or teachers say, what does this mean? What does that mean? And I'd have to say, you have to know my mother. You have to know our relationship with my mother. Then you can understand her side comments and her whips and the rest of it. And it was so true, you know. And you write, dear mom, and your loving son, and all this stuff. And then she writes this very affectionate thing back, you know, stroking me. And uh, the relationship is at the heart of things and celebrating the relationship. And if you do that, in the context of your faith in the church, then the scriptures are going to be alive and personal, and they're really going to enrich your life. So stay with us, come visit us, take a course, come to a conference, whatever. Till next time, may the Lord bless and keep you, show his face and have mercy on you, turn his countenance to you, and give you his peace. Amen. To receive a free handout on today's topic or to purchase a video of this show, call 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357. Email your request to presents at franciscan.edu or write to Franciscan University Presents, Franciscan University of Steubenville, 1235 University Boulevard, Steubenville, Ohio, 43952.